the Cincinnati Daily Commercial. I'm Murray Halstead. And I'm Gwendolyn Richards. And this is your Queen City Bulletin for March 11, 1861. A little bit of war startled the denizens of 4th and Walnut Streets about 9 o'clock on Saturday evening, causing a vast deal of excitement and some little phlebotomy. Mr. Sharp and his son Charles entered the billiard saloon of James Shackelford on 4th Street east of Walnut. The elder Sharp was armed with a poker and the younger with a cane and a pistol and began a triangular fight. About 20 persons were in the saloon and no sooner had the three principals come to blows than they pitched in for a free fight. The old gentleman whacked away with his poker, the young one with his cane, while the others battered away miscellaneously with billiard cues and whatever came to hand. For a few minutes, the fight was right merry. Shackelford had his head cut and was bleeding like a cut pig. The old man had his smeller defaced by a billiard cue, and the young Sharp was in much the same condition as Shackelford. The fight ended when Charles Sharp fired his pistol, which so frightened the belligerents that they ran in different directions. The cause of the quarrel is about this. Shackelford has been, it is alleged, paying his addresses to Miss Sharp, the daughter of one of the combatants and the sister of the other. They, not thinking him a proper match for the young lady, forbade his addresses, but finding that the lovers met clandestinely, they took this way of so spoiling his countenance that he would cease to be attractive to the lady. The whole affair will be investigated at the police court today. Elsewhere in police court, William Hoover was recently tried for vagrancy and released on promising to leave the city forthwith to engage in promised employment. William, however, stood upon the order of his going and employed his leisure in abusing the witnesses who had appeared against him. He was arrested, fined $25, and committed for 10 days. William Burns, a melancholy vagrant, on his way from St. Louis to Pittsburgh afoot, stopped to rest here and was picked up by the police while sleeping in the market space. He was committed for three days. Anne, John, and Bridget Cummings do not live pleasantly together. Each is of the opinion that the other should have been drowned long ago. She is fond of hot toddy and occasionally coerces her liege into a sociable tipple by tying him to the bedpost. They were fined $10 for a recent quarrel and fight. There were 34 patients admitted to the hospital during the past week, 36 discharged, and two died, namely Patrick Lynch and M. McCauley. There were 199 remaining Saturday night, including 19 in the smallpox ward. Last night, while the steamer Silver Moon was lying at the Covington Wharf boat discharging passengers, a German woodpasser, name unknown, who shipped at Cincinnati on Thursday week, accidentally fell overboard and drowned. And Frederick Dyrus, a laboring man who fell over a ledge in a stone quarry beyond Brighton Saturday forenoon, died at the hospital on Sunday morning from the effect of his fall. His scalp was nearly torn off and the cervical spine fatally injured. And now for a field report from the inauguration of President Lincoln. On approaching the platform where he was to take his oath and be inducted into the office of chief executive, Mr. Lincoln removed his hat and held it in his hand as he took the seat assigned him. The article seemed to be a burden. He changed it awkwardly from one to another, and finally, despairing of finding for it any other easy position, deposited it upon the platform beside him. Senators and judges crowded in, and to make room for them, he removed nearer the front of the stage, carrying his hat with him. Again, it was dandled uneasily, and as Senator Baker approached to introduce him to the audience, he made a motion as if to replace the hat on the stage underneath the seat. When Douglas, who had been looking on quietly, and apparently with some apprehensions of a catastrophe to the hat, said, Permit me, sir, and gallantly took the vexatious article and held it during the entire reading of the inaugural. Doug must have reflected pretty seriously during that half hour that instead of delivering an inaugural address from that portico, he was holding the hat of the man who was doing it. 
Come one, come all. The Pioneer Association of the City of Cincinnati will celebrate the 73rd anniversary of the Settlement of Ohio on the 7th day of April next at Wesley Chapel in a religious manner by exhortations and short addresses by some of the oldest pioneer preachers without regard to denomination. It is earnestly desired by the association that as many of the early settlers of this city and state, whether residents now of Ohio or elsewhere, as can make it convenient shall be present, and most cordially are the aged ministers of the gospel invited. The occasion, doubtless, will be deeply interesting. In amusements, at Pike's Opera House this evening will be presented for the first time the magnificent spectacle of the Three Magic Gifts. The unanimity of the St. Louis Press and their enthusiastic criticisms of the piece led us to anticipate a very brilliant and gorgeous spectacle. The syllabus of its plot and incidents is evidence that it abounds in magical effects, in which mechanical ingenuity and decorative skill are wonderfully combined. At Smith and Nixon's Hall, the delightful season of cork opera will, to the regret of everybody who enjoys such entertainments as the Campbells alone serve up, close on Wednesday evening. The program for the evening is rich in its variety of songs, comicalities, and burlesques. Tickets are 30 cents and 15 cents for children. Today's program is brought to you by Dixon's Blackberry Carminative. The best soothing syrup for children and the only safe and pleasant medicine for diarrhea, cholera morbus, etc. Travelers should not be without it, as change of water and diet causes derangement of the bowels and stomach, which diseases are speedily cured by blackberry carminative. Prepared only by George M. Dixon, Apothecary, northeastern corner of 5th and Main Streets. Also brought to you by Spalding Cephalic Pills. By the use of these pills, the periodic attacks of nervous or sick headache may be prevented. And, if taken at the commencement of an attack, immediate relief from pain and sickness will be obtained. They seldom fail in removing the nausea and headache to which females are so subject. They act gently upon the bowels, removing costiveness. For literary men, students, delicate females, and all persons of sedentary habits, they are valuable as a laxative, improving the appetite, giving tone and vigor to the digestive organs, and restoring the natural elasticity and strength of the whole system. Sold by druggist and all other dealers in medicine. One of the most destructive fires from which our city has suffered for many years occurred yesterday morning about 7 o'clock. The extensive lard oil and candle works of T. Emery & Sons, located on Vine and Water Streets and the riverfront, were utterly destroyed. When first observed, the molding room in the fourth story was burning in two places. As no fire was ever used in that part of the building, and as the fire was seen burning in two places, all doubt as to its origin is removed. It was undoubtedly set on fire. There were three men at work cleaning the boilers at the time, and the incendiary was sufficiently familiar with the premises to enter in such a way as not to be observed. The first intimation they had of the fire was from the ringing of alarm bells. Two of them ran upstairs, and finding the whole upper part of the building filled with a stifling smoke, descended, opened the lower doors, and about $3,000 worth of lard oil was rolled out. The combustible nature of the merchandise in the building was such that no availed amount of water could prevent the flames from spreading and destroying the entire building. The most that could be hoped for was to preserve the surrounding property, and even this would have been impossible had it not been for two fortuitous circumstances, the change of wind and the vicinity of the Ohio River. When the fire first broke out, the wind was blowing from a southerly quarter, and had it so continued, no human power could have saved the large alcohol distillery of Fletcher, Hobart & Company, and the adjoining valuable business houses. But while the danger seemed most imminent, the wind suddenly veered around to the east, the engines of the river poured their streams upon it, and it was preserved. 
The heat was so intense that the Magnolia and other steamboats were obliged to be hauled into the stream. A large pile of shingles on the level took fire from the heat. The firemen who held the hose were compelled to erect screens, like the blinds used in duck shooting, to shield them from the intense heat. Each spectator seized a shingle to hold before his face as a lady interposes her fan to avoid the penetrating glare of a brilliant light. The walls fell piecemeal at various stages of the fire. No one was hurt by them, although a reporter of one of the morning papers and several firemen made very narrow escapes from the falling of one of the interior division walls. In the vicinity of the fire were several dilapidated buildings occupied as tenement houses by a large number of families. The consternation among these were very great. We observed two burly Hibernians, whose fear had driven away their wits, deliberately and with great care, lower down by means of a bed cord from a second-story window, tin wash basins, coal scuttles, and similar articles of household gear. The crowd of people attracted by the greatness of the fire was immense, and the Kentucky shore was lined with spectators. The ferryboat brought over large numbers of passengers, but fortunately the heat kept them beyond the reach of falling bricks. The engines were at work all day. The proprietors estimate their loss at between $150,000 and $160,000, upon which they hold policies covering $112,500. And now Gwen has a dispatch from the Charleston correspondent of the New York Tribune. Can the rebels take Fort Sumter? As the critical moment approaches, the rebels distrust their ability to accomplish the feat of taking the fort. The prevailing impression is that the floating battery is a failure. Soldiers mutiny against serving in her. The Richardson guards, who were to do duty in her, have broken up and disbanded. A more critical examination in the fortresses they have constructed at such great cost and labor has given rise to grave doubts as to their efficiency and to well-grounded apprehensions that they would prove slaughter pens before Major Anderson's explosive shots. Cummings Point Battery, which is of much strength, is unquestionably too far off, the distance between it and Fort Sumter being 1,200 yards, while experience shows that 500 yards is the longest practical breaking distance. The failure of the floating battery, which they intended to push within 500 yards of the fort, knocks the underpinning from the rebels. We are reliably assured that these are the results of the examination which Jefferson Davis lately instituted into the preparations of the rebels. Competent engineers, among them an Englishman of much experience, pronounce their blunders not only numerous but great. Davis is too good a military man to trust himself to go to sea in a tub. Good heavens, Murray. It looks like we're getting closer and closer to war every day. Indeed, Gwen. But as I wrote in this morning's edition, wars in modern times are short. Intelligence is communicated by lightning and troops transmitted by steamships or railroad. The work of a whole year in the old style is concentrated into a week. It's worthwhile to console ourselves, Gwen, with the reflection that if a war does break out in this country, it'll be a short one. From your mouth to God's ears. For the Cincinnati Daily Commercial, I'm Murray Halstead. And I'm Gwendolyn Richards. And this has been your Queen City Bulletin. Oh.